uh, Genesis chapter 13. We're going to cover the entire chapter this morning. Um, we, we just got back into Genesis just a couple of weeks ago, and it's not like when we were going through the book of Romans for the last three years, we really need to cover like really short portions of scripture because there was a lot of doctrine that we needed to unpack. Uh, this book is a different kind of book. It's a historical narrative. It's a, it's a story about what happened in history. And so these, these are really uh, self-contained stories. And so it really doesn't make sense to divide these up in any great detail. And so chapter 13 really exists as its own story, the story of Abraham and Lot. There's going to be three episodes of this story of Abraham and Lot, but chapter 13 is the first episode where we see Abraham and his nephew Lot and what happens between them. So we're going to cover the entire chapter this morning. You're saying it works now. Praise the Lord. Um, That's good because I use my hands when I preach. So um, we're going to cover the entire chapter. There, if you're taking notes, there are five sections to chapter 13. We're going to see, first of all, the setting in verses 1 through 4. What's the setting of the story? Then that's going to lead over into the conflict in this story between Abraham and Lot, between their various herdsmen. And that conflict is going to bleed into uh, the solution that Abraham brings, how the conflict is going to be resolved. And then as a result of Abraham's solution, we're going to see Lot's choice in that matter. And then as a result of Lot's choice, we see God's revelation of his promises and Abraham's worship as well. So we're going to start with the setting in verses 1 through 4. We remember where we left off at the end of chapter, chapter 12 last week. Abraham and his wife got booted out of Egypt. They tried to, well, they did lie to Pharaoh, tried to deceive the Egyptians into thinking that his wife Sarah was really his sister. He got called on that, that his his plan backfired on him. He got caught, and Pharaoh kicked him out of Egypt. So now they're leaving Egypt, and they're making their way back into Canaan. So we're going a little bit different this morning. Because we're covering the whole chapter, because we don't have three hours to cover this particular sermon, Uh, We're we're not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to walk through this verse by verse. So verse 1 sets the setting for us. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now this is the first mention of Lot since God told Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to a land that I will tell you. We saw Lot there, his nephew, but we haven't heard of him since then. And and Lot is not mentioned in Abraham and Sarah's journey down to Egypt, but we know that he was there with them. He just wasn't pertinent to the story. But we know that he was there with them in that journey through Egypt because now as they make their way out of Egypt and, and back into Canaan, he is with them again. Now a reminder of who Lot is because he's central to chapter 13 and, and what God is telling us here. Lot is, again, the nephew of Abraham. He is the son of Abraham's brother, Haran. And his father, Haran, was, he he stayed back in Ur of the Chaldeans when Abraham was called out. He stayed back. Haran stayed back, his brother. And he eventually died in Ur of the Chaldeans. But his son, Lot, 
For some reason, because of the excitement of the journey that Abraham was going on to a land that God was going to show him, he left Ur of the Chaldeans and he went along with Abraham and his aunt Sarah. And they've been living together and traveling together and watching their herds together ever since. And as you can imagine, probably growing in the closeness of their relationship. He's a part of their family now. So they get booted out of Egypt. They're back in Canaan now. And apparently, they're very wealthy. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now some of this wealth came from his family home in Ur of the Chaldeans. He left Ur with, with some of this wealth, and he's been traveling this nomadic lifestyle ever since, carrying this wealth with him. It says that he was very rich. The word in Hebrew means that, that he was very, it was heavy. This, this richness was very heavy on him. So some of it came from his family home in southern Mesopotamia, but some of it also came from Egypt, as we saw last week, because Pharaoh uh, dealt nicely, he says, dealt well with Abraham because of his wife Sarah and gave him all kinds of livestock and all kinds of servants. And as we saw last week, that was completely a demonstration of God's grace and mercy to Abraham because there was nothing that Abraham did to deserve that. In fact, we see Abraham in the second half of chapter 12 just failing in his faith and trust of God. So that was a demonstration of God's grace that he left Egypt more wealthy than when he escaped into Egypt and went down to Egypt. So he's very wealthy. And by the way, Lot is wealthy as well, as we'll see in just a moment. And as they travel out of Egypt, they make their way back into Canaan. Where do they go? They go back to Bethel. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says that he journeyed on from the Negev, that's southern Canaan, as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So this is the altar that Abraham built all the way back in chapter 12. When he first came into Canaan, he he arrived into Canaan from the north. He came in through Shechem. And at Shechem, he built an altar to the Lord there. And then he packed up his tent and continued his nomadic uh, lifestyle. And he moved down to Bethel just east of Bethel, between Bethel and Ai, and he built another altar to the Lord there. And we're told that he called upon the name of the Lord there. Well, it's that altar that Abraham now returns to here in chapter 13. And we're told that again, Abram calls upon the name of the Lord. It's noteworthy here that this is the first time that we see Abram going to an altar, building an altar, and calling on the name of the Lord, and worshiping the Lord. This is the first time that we see him doing this since he struggled with his faith back in chapter 12 because of the famine. That famine that resulted in him turning away from trusting in God and having faith in God and caused him to head down south to Egypt. And the writer of Genesis, which is Moses, He wants us to notice here, because of the literary form and the literary structure that he uses here, he draws our attention to that fact. Abraham gets to Canaan the first time in chapter 12. He builds two altars, and he calls on the name of the Lord. 
And then shortly after that, hardship strikes. There's a famine in the land. Now his trust in the Lord is put to the test. And instead of trusting God and his plans, Abraham trusts in himself and his own plans, and he heads south to Egypt to escape the famine. And during the whole time, during their sojourning in Egypt down there, we hear absolutely nothing about him building any altars, and we hear absolutely nothing about him calling on the name of the Lord. And so now, after that failure and that test of his faith, and after, after the shame of being rebuked by a pagan ruler, Pharaoh of Egypt, he re-enters Canaan and goes back to the altar that he built before and again calls on the name of the Lord. Moses is drawing our attention here to the fact that Abraham is returning to Yahweh. He's returning to the Lord. He's returning to trusting in the Lord. He's returning to worship Yahweh and a commitment to following Yahweh. Now, we're not told what's in Abram's heart here. And so we need to be careful not to read into the text, but I can imagine that his return to worship here was one of contrition, was one of repentance, because he had failed that test. I can imagine that his return to worship here is one of gratefulness for the grace and mercy that God had shown him despite his failures in Egypt. He had blown it big time. He had failed to trust in God when there's the first instance of hardship, famine in the land, and instead of trusting God and his promises, he takes matters into his own hands and he heads south to Egypt. And then when he's faced with just the potential of violence in Egypt, he lies about his wife, Sarah, being his sister. And to add insult to injury, an Egyptian pagan ruler is the one that God uses to rebuke him for his failure in faith. I think in many ways, Abraham in Egypt is like the prodigal son of Luke 15. In a foreign land, living as he pleases, getting into trouble because of his sins and life choices, and then God using supernatural means to bring him to his senses, and then he experiences God's grace and mercy. The prodigal experiences God's grace and mercy in the form of a ring on his finger and the feast of the fattened calf. And Abraham experiences God's grace and mercy as he comes back from Egypt, loaded down, heavy with wealth, with livestock and servants. So now he returns to the altar, gets back to Canaan, and after that experience, he goes back to the altar, I would imagine, contrite, repentant, grateful, and renewed in his commitment to trust and follow God, follow Yahweh, no matter what that means in life for him. He learned a valuable lesson in Egypt, and his faith in Yahweh, as a result, is renewed. So that's the setting there. Abraham and Lot are back into Canaan now. They're up at Bethel. Now the conflict of the story in verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. So it's not just Abraham who's wealthy. Lot is wealthy as well. 
And, and by the way, we should probably note here that there's absolutely nothing disparaging, even insinuated by Moses, about either Abraham or Lot because of the material wealth. In fact, we're, we're, it's, it's almost as if the material wealth is a, is a result of God's blessing, the Lord's blessing on their lives as a result of grace and mercy as we saw last week. So there's nothing evil or sinister about the fact that Abram and Lot are, are wealthy, but it does create the potential for conflict. Look at verse six. So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. It's kind of like Woody in Toy Story. You remember Woody in Toy Story? One of the things that Woody said when you pulled his string is, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. And same is true here for Abram and Lot. Canaan is not big enough for the two of us and our herds and our flocks. The sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, some of which he got from Ur, some of which he got from Egypt. That livestock from both Abram and from Lot could not be sustained by grazing on the same plot of land. There just wasn't room. And it was bound to cause conflict. And it did. Verse 7. Moses says, And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So the herdsmen of both Abram's flock and herds and, and Lot's flocks and herds, those herdsmen were in conflict with one another because there simply just wasn't enough, enough grass. And so who was going to get the choice land and the choice grass for their herds to feed? So there was strife. There was conflict between them. And to make matters worse, apparently there's already people in the land anyway. We're told the Canaanites and the Perizzites were there, apparently with their flocks and herds as well, grazing on the same land. And so Abram notices this, and he sees the potential for conflict. And so he knows that a solution must be given. And so look at Abram's solution in verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, Moses writes, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me. Between you, Lot, and me, Abraham. Let there be no strife between us. Which means either that there already was strife, and he doesn't want there to be, or he wants to prevent any strife from happening. But there's already strife between the herdsmen, and Abram doesn't want there to be strife there at all. And so he says, let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Which means, Lot, we're blood. We're family, and there shouldn't be strife. There shouldn't be conflict between us. And so verse 9, here's a solution. Is not the whole land before you? Now, pause right there for a second. That's an interesting question. It's a rhetorical question. The assumed answer is, well, yes, of course the whole land is before us. What, what, is, what does Abram mean by that statement? Isn't the whole land before us? Don't we have all this stuff? I find in that statement of Abraham a, a statement of his renewed faith and trusting in Yahweh. The solution that Abraham brings here in verses uh, five, eight, 8 and 9 result in a three-part test 
of Abraham's faith. So, so we've got another test of Abraham's faith. We have the test of faith in chapter 12, which came in the form of the famine in Canaan, and then came in the form of the potential violence at the hands of the Egyptians, and he failed that test. But now we've got another test of faith for Abraham here. And the first part of this three-part test is, would Abraham trust God in what God was promising about this land? That, that, that God had made a promise that I'm going to give this land to you. Would Abraham trust God in this? Well, the question is, was the whole land his yet? What, was it Abraham's possession yet? What was it? Did it belong to him to divide up however he chose? It wasn't yet. It was a promise from the Lord. But this land had not yet been given to him. That was, the fulfillment of that promise was yet to come. In fact, just two verses earlier, we noted that the Canaanites and the Perizzites are sharing this land, <clears throat> excuse me, sharing this land with them. And they haven't been driven out yet. And so the fulfillment of that promise, promise has not yet been, has not yet occurred. The whole land was not yet his. And yet, Abraham speaks as if it is. God had promised it, it had not yet happened, but Abraham speaks of the land in light of God's eventual fulfillment of his promise concerning the land. He speaks as if it's already been fulfilled with such confidence in God's promises that he speaks knowing that it has not yet been fulfilled, he speaks as if it has. Is not the whole land before us? Apparently, the faith lesson from sojourning down in Egypt has already begun to reap a harvest of greater trust in God for Abraham. Abraham's faith had been tested down there, and he had failed the test. And yet God used even his failure in that test of his faith to now bolster his faith in God. There's a lesson here for us. If you have faltered in your faith, Christian, if God has placed a test of faith in your life and you've blown it, God can use even your failure to bolster your faith in him. Why? Because your faith your, your, your faith to stand on God's promises today and your faith to stand on God's promises in the future, your faith to stand is, is, is not based on your ability to stand upright in the midst of the storm. Instead, your faith is in the God who put the storm there to begin with. And that's what Abraham is experiencing here. He's walked through that storm. His faith has failed, and yet God has now restored him to faith in him. And so for us, when we find ourselves in that place, we need to do like Abraham did. We need to return to the altar. We need to call on the name of the Lord like Abraham did. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, which is, that's what failure in our faith is. It's sin. A lack of faith is sin. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So when you find yourself blowing it, when God puts a a test of faith in your life and we fail, we confess our sins. We confess our failure to God in the midst of the storm. And not only will he forgive us of our sin, but our faith in him will be stronger when the next storm comes and when the next test of faith comes. The next test of faith for Abraham comes in the form of finally being separated from Abram's father. Remember, the calling from God is to leave your father's house and leave your homeland and go to a place that I will show you. And, and this, this final separation from his father, Terah's house, is seen in his separation from Lot. And then the third test of his faith here is, is whether Abraham will t- trust God in how the land is divided, this land that is before him, that's been promised to him, and how this land is divided between he and Lot. So, so listen to how he resolves the conflict in the rest of verse 9. He says, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me, Lot. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right, then I will go to the left. The, the solution of Abram here doesn't mean that he's not going to see Lot anymore. This isn't banishment. This is just a solution when two giant herds are grazing on the same plot of grass. This is Abram separating the herds, separating the herdsmen, and even separating the family so that there would be peace and so that Abram and Lot would not have strife between them. We should note here that Abraham's means, his, his solution to this source of conflict here demonstrates both wisdom and it demonstrates great humility on his, on his part as well as great trust in God and allowing Lot to be the one to choose instead of himself. As the elder of the two, Abraham had all the right in the world to be the one who made the choice of which land to take. But in humility, he doesn't assert his own rights Instead, he allows Lot to choose. But letting Lot choose first also demonstrated his faith and trust in God, that his, that his trust in God has been greatly restored from the Abraham that we saw in the second half of chapter 12. In our family, when our boys were younger, whenever there was a, a, a squabble over one item that remained on the table, like one brownie that, le- that was left over, the, and two kids wanted that. The way that we would solve that is we let one of them cut the brownie, and we let the other one choose which half of the brownie they were going to take. Never have you seen a more precise measurement of the very middle of a brownie so that it would be fair. But here, Abram doesn't measure out the land beforehand. To, to make sure that it's even Stephen, that Lot gets this, much, this many square miles of land and I get this many. He doesn't do that. It seems to be much more arbitrary. If you take the right, I'll take the left. If you take the left, I'll take the right. You just choose Lot. And this man, of course, that Abraham was going to be left over with the leftovers. He would, he would get whatever Lot didn't choose. But he's okay with that. Because now he's trusting Yahweh again. He's not taking matters into his own hands like he was in chapter 12. Now he's trusting Yahweh. 
Yahweh, you've ordered my steps all along the way. You ordered my steps back in Ur. You ordered my steps as we traveled through southern Mesopotamia. You ordered my steps as we came in through Shechem. You ordered my steps as we went through the Negev. And Lord, now I can see that you were even ordering my steps down in Egypt. And I trust that you're going to continue to order my steps. So go ahead, Lot. You make the choice. It doesn't matter to me because I know that regardless of where, uh, of the land that I end up with, the Lord will keep his promises. The picture here of Abraham is standing confidently on the promises of God. And it's a, it's a different Abraham that we saw in the second half of chapter 12, isn't it? If you remember, we saw two, two Abrahams in chapter 12 even. In the first nine verses, we saw Abraham of, of great faith trusting in this God who had never spoken to him before, who said, leave your home and, your, and everything that you know and go to a land that I will show you. But then hardship strikes and we see a totally different Abraham in verses 10 through 20. Abraham that doesn't trust in God, instead trusts in his own plan and his own ways and his own source of provision and goes down to Egypt to make do for himself. But now we see that old Abraham again. Yet he's a little bit older a little bit wiser, and a lot stronger in his faith. Now, his faith in God is not perfect here. It's still in process. Abraham, as we walk through the story of Genesis, he will continue to fail in his faith. God will, God will continue to give him tests of faith along the way, and he'll fail some of those, a number of them. But his faith in Yahweh is growing. In spits and spurts, maybe, but his faith in God is growing. And Christian, I hope you find encouragement in that. I hope you find encouragement in that. Our faith journey is not always linear. Our faith journey is not always linear. Sometimes we have to rely on GPS. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Sorry, I just had to. <laughs> but isn't that true? Sometimes our faith journey is in spits and spurts. It's not always up and to the right. Sometimes we falter in our faith. Sometimes we fail those tests of faith that God puts into our lives. But if we return to him, if we go back to the altar and we call on the name of the Lord and we confess and we repent, and we humble ourselves before the Lord, a deeper faith and trust in God is cultivated. And that deeper trust in God will grow for a while, and then, then there may come a test of faith where we'll fail again. And then we'll confess, and we'll repent, and return to the altar, and humble ourselves, and again, the Lord will make our faith in him yet stronger. And such will be our journey of faith until he brings us home and causes our faith to be made sight. So don't be discouraged by the degree to which your faith is weak. Don't be discouraged by those failures and those tests of faith that God puts in your life. Return to the altar. See God again for who he is and let him cultivate a deeper trust in him 
in your life. So that's the primary lesson about Abraham in this passage. Now let's return our attention to his nephew, Lot. Abraham has presented the solution. Lot, you make the choice. So what is Lot's choice? We see that in verses 10 through 13. Moses writes in verse 10, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. When Moses writes here that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, he's using very graphic, um, figurative words here that are an attempt by Moses to allude back to a couple of, at least a couple of other instances, appealed to their desires, and they took it. The first is in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and so she took of it, she ate it. Another time is back in Genesis chapter 6, when Moses writes about the sons of God, that they saw that the daughters of men, whoever the sons of God were, go back and listen to that sermon, the giants who were in the land or whoever that was, but the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. In both of those situations, Moses writes that someone saw something that appealed to their sight and appealed to their desires, and so they took it. And he's doing the same here with Lot. Lot lifted up his eyes, and he sees the Jordan Valley and its well-watered soil, and it appealed to his desires, and so that's what he took. Took it. Now, some might say, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with a farmer choosing well-watered soil? I mean, doesn't that just make sense? Well-watered soil means there's good access to water, and after all, we're farmers, we're raising herds. Isn't that a good thing? Doesn't that just make sense? And when we begin to reason like that, then we're reasoning like Abraham did back in chapter 12, verse 10, when that famine came into the land, and instead of trusting God and God's promises, and, and instead of waiting on God to see how God was going to provide for him supernaturally, he took matters into his own hands. And he did what was logical from a human perspective, and he went south to Egypt instead of trusting in God. And so we find ourselves reasoning like Abraham there. Instead of trusting God and staying in the promised land, he chose to take matters into his own hands. But here, Lot's doing the same thing. Instead of Lot trusting God with whatever was given to him, instead of insisting that Abraham, his elder, his uncle, do what he should have done, which is to choose first and allow him to do it, Lot makes his decision. And he bases his decision not on trusting God, but on what's going to appeal to his desires. What's, what's going 
What's going to help his flock better? What's going to make him wealthier? He appeals to his sight and what he sees and what he wants rather than entrusting God. What Moses is doing here, he's, he's doing everything that he can in the way that he writes this story to draw a distinction between Abraham and Lot. Just as he will later draw a distinction between Isaac and Ishmael, and still later as he draws a distinction between Jacob and Esau, here the distinction is between Abraham and Lot. And it's a distinction between the generally righteous and the generally unrighteous. It's a distinction between the lineage of the seed of promise and the rival of that seed. Abraham is being portrayed here as an example of God's chosen, while Lot is being portrayed here as an example of the foolishness and depravity of man. Now, we don't, we don't see all of that within the confines of this story, but Moses is alluding to it. He, he writes here that Lot saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so Moses here is alluding to two locations that were a source of, of great provision and blessing, but also were a source of temptation. Garden of, Lord, of, of the Lord harkens us back to the Garden of Eden. It was lush and green and fertile. There was all kinds of food there. There was also, though, temptation. There was a serpent. There was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Same with the land of Egypt. Lot was with him when he went to Egypt. He saw the Nile Delta. He saw that fertile land that was rich with nutrients. But there was also temptation in Egypt as well. And yet Lot is ambivalent towards the temptation. And Moses puts an exclamation point here onto this allusion by including that parenthetical phrase at the end, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses is reminding the reader here of the utter depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of those cities at the hands of the Lord that will come later. He even tells us in the very next verse, verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And where does Lot pitch his tent? We're told in verse 12 that he settled among the cities of the valley and he moved his tent as far as Sodom. So Abram stays in Canaan. He stays in the land of promise, the land that God had promised to give to he and his descendants. But we're we're told clearly here that Lot leaves Canaan. He abandons Canaan. He abandons the promised land, the promise of God. And he settles among the cities of the valley and he moves his tent as far as Sodom. He's not living in Sodom yet. He's just pitched his tent outside of it. But before we even get halfway through the next chapter, chapter 14, he's living in the city. And then in chapter 19, when we have the infamous destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, not only is he living in the city, but where do we find him? He's at the gate of the city, a place that is reserved for the leaders and the VIPs of the city. That's where Lot is. And so we see his progression into depravity. He starts on the outskirts of Sodom, 
flirting with temptation, but not diving headlong in. Before long, he's living in the midst of it. And then he's the VIP of the city, a city that eventually became synonymous with depravity and rebellion against God. And by the way, he wasn't doing this to reach them with the gospel. This is not pioneer missions on Lot's part. He's just doing what he wanted. He was drawn to the city because of what the city had to offer. So we see here the slippery slope of compromising, getting too close to the heat. But the main difference here between Abram and Lot in this story is not what eventually happens to Lot and his wife and his family in the city where he eventually lived. The main difference here is that Lot made his decision based essentially on the grass is greener over there. His decision was based on what he saw and what appealed to him, what his desires were, what he wanted. His decision was based on sight. But Abram's decision wasn't based on sight. His decision to allow Lot to be the one to choose and that he would be left over with the leftovers, Abraham's decision in that respect wasn't based on sight. It was based on faith. Abraham is, is portrayed in this story in these verses as confidently resting on the promises of God. A confidence that was forged in the furnace of trial and error. His goal here is to honor God by following God and trusting God no matter where Yahweh would lead him. Abraham was going to stand on the promises. While Lot is portrayed as foolishly following his own selfish desires based on what he sees. So we know how the story ends for Lot as a result of his choice, but what about Abraham? How does this work out for him? Look at verses 14 and following as we see God's revelation and really his, his reiteration of his promises and Abraham's worship of God as a result. So if we were to stop the story right here, right before verse 14, it would almost seem as though Lot got the better end of the deal. The land that he got was more fertile, more well-watered, greater potential for growing crops. But then the Lord speaks to Abram here in verse 14. By the way, the first time that the Lord speaks to Abraham since he told Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. Now he speaks to Abraham again. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look. We've seen that phrase already, haven't we? Just as Lot lifted up his eyes and, and looked at the valley of the Jordan and saw that it was well watered, it appealed to his desires and his, his fleshly desires. Here, God tells Abraham, lift up your eyes, Abraham, and look. Look from the place where you are. Look northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. God reminds Abraham that this land is not the leftover land. This land is the choice land. It is here, Abraham, that I will bless you and make your name great and fulfill the promises that I gave to you. And then God also reiterates his promise of offspring to Abraham in verses 16 and 17. He says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, 
so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. God reminds Abraham that his promise of land and his promise of offspring are still intact. His promise to make of him a great nation and through him to be a blessing of all peoples, that promise is still intact. And then he invites Abraham to walk the land. Abraham, I want you to see what I'm going to give you. Walk from the north to the south, the east to the west. Walk throughout this land. I want you to see it. Everything that you see as you walk, Abraham, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. God is reminding Abraham here through direct revelation of his promise of land and offspring. Why? So that Abram will continue to grow in his trust of Yahweh. He still hasn't given it to him. But he wants Abraham to continue to grow in his trust in God. Nothing had changed for him, except both he and Sarah are just a little bit older. Sarah's still barren. There's still absolutely no logical human reason why they would have any confidence that they can, that they can have children. And yet, what does Abraham do when God reiterates this covenant of grace? Look at verse 18. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Abram picks up his tent, and as the Lord had invited him to do, he walks the land. And he begins, begins to travel down towards the Negev. And he stops in Hebron, and he builds an altar, and he worships God. Tents and altars are a familiar motif of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Tents and altars. We see the patriarch over and over again building temporary dwellings for himself as he lives in tents. But we also see him continuing to build permanent altars to Yahweh. Abram's worship of Yahweh in chapter 13 forms a bookend for this whole chapter. At the beginning of this chapter, he he re-enters into Canaan, and he returns to the altar at Bethel, and he calls on the name of the Lord, worshiping God. And now at the end of the chapter... He builds another altar to the Lord here in Hebron and worships here as well. His worship at the beginning of the chapter, I believe, is marked by contrition and repentance, gratefulness for God's mercy and grace in the midst of his failures. It served to recenter his trust Recenter him and his trust in God. And, and, then, and then this test of faith comes in this chapter. And this time, he passes the test of faith with flying colors, unlike we saw in chapter 12. This time, he passes with flying colors. So that, that worship at Bethel at the beginning of this chapter equips him to stand on God's promises, equips him to, to stand up in that test of faith when he had to separate from Lot, when he had to trust God in the division of the land. But, but then Abraham's worship of God here at the end of the chapter is marked less by contrition and more by celebration, I would say, praise to God for how God had 
saw him through this. And as a result of the revelation that this land that was left over, it wasn't the leftovers. It was, in fact, the choice land. And then God reiterates his promises to Abraham as if to say, Abraham, just as I came through for you here, and I made sure that when you trusted me by letting Lot choose, I came through for you, and I made sure that you would get the land that I promised to you, just as I came through for you there, I will come through for you and these promises as well, Abraham. And so Abraham's worship, he's, he's, he responds in worship by praising God for his faithfulness and celebrating that God's promises are true and trustworthy. And so worship serves both of those roles for us. It equips us to stand on God's promises. It builds our faith in God for the tests of faith that he puts into our lives. But it also is the result of those promises being made to us, reminding us that he is a promise keeper. Because this God has made promises to us as well. He's made promises to you and I. He promises that all those who trust in his son Jesus Christ alone to be forgiven of their sins and rescued from the judgment that we deserve for rebelling and sinning against a holy God. He promises us that through faith in Christ we are forgiven of our sin, that the penalty of that judgment is taken away and that we are given new eternal life. He promises never to leave us or forsake us. He promises to work out all things together for our good and his glory, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And he promises that this life of sin and suffering is only temporary and that we have an eternal home that awaits us in glory. And so church, let us worship him in song, with our lives, Let's return to the altar and worship him because of these promises and many, many other promises that he's made to us. And may the Lord be pleased to use our worship of him to be yet another faith-building exercise so we're that much more prepared for the next test of faith that comes our way. Let's pray.